Good morning, everyone. If you would please stand for a reading of God's word. We are going to be reading Psalm 129, verses 1 through 8, and that is located on page 298 in the blue Bibles that are located in the seat pocket in front of you. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take this Bible home as our gift to you. Psalm 129, a song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on their housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is God's word. Thank you, Landy. Let's pray to prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Father, we thank you that you have written your word for us so that your will to us might be plain, your heart towards us might be clear. We thank you for this. Lord, we pray that as we stand and and sit attentively before your word, Lord, that we would, God, just be uh, transformed by it, Lord, that we would not be bored in its presence, that we wouldn't be God seeking to be entertained or uh, hear a message that only applies to other people, but all of us, Lord, would prepare our hearts, Lord God, to receive your word as bread that is vital for our very life, Lord God. God, I pray for myself. I pray that you would just help me to um, be clear and accurate, Lord God, to to not add to your word, to not take anything away from your word, to not let it be polluted or corrupted by my own opinions, Lord, but to clearly communicate what your spirit has written. So I thank you for that. You're a good God. We worship you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Good to have all you here. Especially good to see Mr. Jimbo McMenemy sitting out there. And uh, Jimbo has had just a a really hard few months. He's been taking care of his father, who's on hospice, and Andrews, and has had to be away from us a lot. But it's good to have you here, man. So uh, go easy on me today, okay? So <laughs> uh, that's probably a little bit too much to ask for Jimbo, man. So, um, but uh, we uh, we've been obviously gone through this series on the Song of Ascent. It, it, this is our tenth of fifteen messages, and that I can't believe we're already two thirds of the way through after today's message, but I have really enjoyed teaching this series. Um, let me make a comparison. So a few months ago, some of you were here, I, I did a series on the book of Jude, and the, Jude, the book of Jude's primary concern is to talk about false teachers. And so, um, you know, we, we just kind of laid it out the way the scriptures has it, and it was a very heavy series it had you know there were a lot of 
of uh, probably toes, including mine, that got stepped on in that. And it was, a, it was just a really, it was a really, it was, I think it was good, but it was heavy. And this, this series in the Songs of Ascent has been different in tone. In this series, we have gotten to together soar to the very highest height of the blessing that belongs to God's people. Let me just take you through what we've done so far in Psalm 120. We saw how the Lord delivers us from our distress. In Psalm 121, we realize that our help comes from the Lord. In 122, we saw that there is security within the household of God. In 123, we envisioned ourselves as servants, patiently awaiting the mercy of God. In 124, we saw that the Lord was on our side. In 125, we discovered that we cannot be moved as we trust in the Lord. In 126, we celebrated how the Lord had restored our fortunes. And in 127 and 128, we saw how God's blessing transforms our families, that it affects spouses and children and brings blessing to our household. So when we come to, if we're reading through the Psalms of Ascent, and we come to Psalm 129, we may have a, just a, a little tinge of anxiety when we hear the honest confession that begins in verse 1. The psalmist says, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Well, what happened to all that blessing that we've talked about over and over again? There's three things here that Israel, the people of God, acknowledge in this psalm, in this very first verse of this psalm, rather, They acknowledge these. I want to point these out to you. First of all, Israel acknowledges that they have been afflicted greatly. Throughout their history, if you know the history of the Old Testament, throughout the history of the Jewish people, they have been enslaved, attacked, under siege. They've been mocked. They've been subjugated. They've been mistreated. They've been harassed. And eventually, they were exiled uh, by Assyria and Babylon, and that is the story of the Jews in the Old Testament. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just that they were afflicted greatly. Secondly, affliction came from so many directions in the Old Testament that throughout their history, the, the Israelites can't attribute it to one single enemy. In fact, they just say, they have afflicted me. They, they just kind of pile everybody into this big pile, and they say, they have afflicted me. It's a plural they, and it means Egyptians and Amalekites and Edomites and Moabites and, and Canaanites and Philistines and Assyrians and Babylonians, along with many other wicked kings and wicked nations. And lastly, it wasn't just that they were afflicted greatly and that they were afflicted by this mass of, of different enemies, but the, he says that they have been afflicted from their youth. And we know that from the very beginning of their national history, how does the national history of Israel start? Well, the father of the nation of Israel is the man who was named Israel, Jacob. And Jacob starts on the run from his brother. He starts getting cheated by this guy named Laban, his uncle. And so all this stuff is happening, and that's how it starts. So from their very youth, they've been greatly afflicted. From the very beginning of their national history, continuing all through the ages, Israel always had bloodthirsty enemies ready to pounce, ready to destroy the people of God. They were surrounded in God's providence and God's wisdom and God's sovereignty. He had situated the people of Israel so that they were surrounded by hungry wolves who were always casting a greedy eye towards Jerusalem. 
And as we've pondered several times now, this is what I want you to see. This is just a history of the Jewish people. As we've pondered several times now in this series, the shadow that was ancient Israel's history is the substance of the church of Jesus Christ's reality. Paul says just as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says this, Now these things, the things that we're talking about, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so what do we learn from this? these three elements of this first verse? Well, we learn that Christ's church has also always been greatly afflicted. If Again, if you know the history of the New Testament and the church since that time, in the last 2,000 years, the church has known imprisonment, it's known beatings, it's known executions, it's known the plundering of her property, the slandering of her good name. Jesus promised us this. Paul is talking to the, the church in Acts 14, and he says this, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And I always wonder when we, when we preach that verse, if, if the impulse is to say, well, that's not what I signed up for. Well, if you signed up to be a part of the body of Christ, that is what you signed up for. The church is also, like ancient Israel, known many enemies. Uh, the, the, just like ancient Israel had, had their they, they have, uh, they have, the enemies of the church have pressed her hard. Think about it. Think about your, your church history. They've faced the, she's faced the lions of Rome. She's faced the flaming stakes of Bloody Mary. She's survived the gulags of the Soviet Union, the labor camps in North Korea, kidnappings in Nigeria, bombings in the Middle East. In the U.S., while we haven't seen the same degree of persecution thus far, our values are mocked constantly in the truths of the gospel are regarded as injurious to society. We face hostility from the professional, political, and academic realms. And the media cancels us simply on the basis of our faith in the Lord Jesus. And this should not surprise us. Jesus said this to his disciples, Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And also... Not only are we greatly afflicted like Israel, and, and we have many enemies like Israel, but this affliction has been with the church since their youth. The earliest pages of the, the book of Acts show us that Peter and John are arrested and they're flogged. Stephen was martyred. The church father, Tertullian, who wrote in the late 2nd and early 3rd century, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The psalmist calls our attention, though, when we get to this verse, and we get to start going into, into verse 2, he calls our, our attention to not only remember the affliction that we've endured, but the goodness and the deliverance of God. Look how he does this in verse 1 again. At the end of verse 1, it says, Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. Think about your Old Testament history again. And all of those afflictions that were brought on the people of Israel. Well, remember how they ended? Pharaoh's army drowned in the sea. The walls of Jericho fell flat. Goliath was beheaded by a punk teenager. The people were released from their Babylonian captivity. No matter the affliction, God miraculously brought deliverance for his people. 
And similarly, in the New Testament, the angel released Peter from jail. The Philippian prison crumbled when Paul and Silas sang praises at midnight. Stephen saw Christ standing at the right hand of God. And even in the church, when blood was spilled and lives were taken, guess what happened? The church grew like a wildfire, and it consumed the entire Roman world in one single generation. The enemies of God have raged at us, they've attacked us, but they have never prevailed. And the psalmist goes on in this, and he he paints this kind of graphic picture, if you understand the imagery, of what our persecution, both in Israel and the church, looks like. He says in verse 3, he says, The plowers plowed upon my back, and they made long their furrows. Now, what is he saying there? He, He is envisioning those who have persecuted Israel as plowmen, and they're dragging their plows across the backs of the people, leaving deep scars like the furrows of a freshly plowed field. And he's thinking probably of Pharaoh's taskmasters back in Egypt with their whips as they, as they, they uh, just oppress the people back in the Old Testament. And we know that also in the New Testament, Romans and Jews also flogged their enemies with the cat of nine tails. But even if we in the West, what I want you to see about this, if you say, well, that was sad that you know, the Egyptians beat the Jews and Christians were built, beat by the, by the Romans and the Jews, But what I want you to see is that even if we in the West don't live in a time or an area with intense external persecution, every single one of us who is a follower of Jesus has known the plow on our back. We've known it. We've known what that's like. And what I want you to understand is that it is Satan who is the villain who holds the plow. He yokes his oxen to the plow upon our backs and drives them forward while he whistles sweet songs of allurement and provocation, tempting the, the, the oxen to power and praise. Why do I say that? Because the oxen who pull the plow of persecution over the backs of the church are the wicked governments, the corrupt pastors and priests and a world system that is very willing and well-equipped to torture the bodies, the minds, and the souls of righteous men throughout all of history and all around the world. It's the nature of being a part of the church. But what I want you to see in this, when, when we go back to what, they, what the, the psalmist said earlier, where he said, yet they have not prevailed against us, there's a subtle truth in this psalm that we will miss if we're not careful. We'll be so focused on our great affliction and the plow going across our back that we'll miss this thought. God is the one who owns the plow of persecution. Maybe I should say that one more time. I said God is the one who owns the plow of persecution. And the devil driving the oxen only goes forward by the permission of Almighty God. He has constructed, God has constructed this plow in such a way that it cannot go one inch deeper than he intends. This is what uh, verse 4 says. It says, The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. The, the thing that's being envisioned there is there's these, there's these oxen and this plow, and they're, they're pulling with all their might, and they're, they're, they're driving across the backs of believers. And God comes along in his righteousness, in his perfect righteousness, and he cuts the reins 
And so the oxen have nothing to pull anymore. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. There comes a time in, in every suffering Christian's experience where God decides that the work is done. And he says, stop. And he cuts the reins of the oxen. See, make no mistake about it. God is not proving his love for you by allowing you to avoid all hardship and persecution. God is going to allow you to experience hardship, to experience persecution, but he will never allow you to experience it more than is necessary for the development of your holiness and the manifestation of his glory. Suffering is never, ever beyond his control. Let me prove that to you. If God were to abandon you, to to just abandon you to the attacks of the enemy, even for a moment, you would never survive. Your enemy is way more crafty than you are uh, enduring. You would be destroyed. But the reason you survive those attacks is because God is allowing just enough to develop your holiness and manifest his glory. The book of Job teaches us clearly that the, that the devil is a barking dog with sharp teeth, but he is one who is always leashed in regard to God's people. He's always on a leash. And what he does, and what he does in the lives of God's people, he does with permission, but under authority. But the lost, those who are rebellious, who are in a state of rebellion toward God, they have no such promise. In fact, we are guaranteed that for those people, someday the devil will have the full fruit of his malicious designs against the unredeemed of the human race. And and those, those designs will be realized as they share in his fiery eternal judgment. But for the righteous, this verse, verse 4, tells us that a time comes when God triumphantly says, enough. And he cuts the cords that bound us to suffering. For some, it comes through a temporal deliverance, a healing, a rescue that comes to us. But for others, it comes at the time of our death. But let me let you know that someday all suffering will be over. Because God will declare it over. The time is done. The work is done. But there's, some, there's a way more important factor that I want you to consider in this. As you consider this graphic image of, of the back of the righteous being plowed with long furrows. Think about this. Consider what the purpose of a plow is. Think about that. It's not just to make pretty lines in the, in the, in the earth. What is a plow for? Well, it prepares the ground to receive seed so that a harvest can be produced. Without the plow, the ground would be hard and it would be unreceptive. The seed would just bounce right off of it. And nothing of value would ever be produced. If I were to take a poll right now, if we had time to do this, and I started with Ginger and went all the way back and, and did and back to Angel and did everybody in this room, and I said, what is your favorite go-to verse in the Bible? I don't know what you would say. But I guarantee you, the, the chances are better than not that somebody in this room would say Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To the, for those who are called according to his purpose. We love that scripture. Why? Because it tells us that no matter how ugly, nasty, rotten things are right now, there's a reason for it and it's going to get better, right? We like that. 
But do you ever think about exactly how that verse works? How God takes all of the junk of our life and works it together for good. And and this exclusively for those who are called according to His purpose. Well, the way He does it is God takes hard times. God takes those times that really hurt. And He causes beauty to come from our ashes as He softens us with the plow through trial and pain. Because of our natural sinful inclination, a harvest can be produced in us no other way. We have to experience the breaking that only the plow can bring about in us. Because we live in a world where we're greatly afflicted from our youth, because we constantly feel the sharp blades of the plow of tribulation digging deep into our backs, we may imagine that since it's this way and since it's always been this way, that it will always be this way. We imagine life, so to speak, as this constant tension of good and evil, that there are these two forces of good, God's side and evil, the devil's side, and they're always just kind of pulling against each other. But I want you to understand, if you think that way, this is not a Christian way to think. It is an Eastern way to think. It's a, it's a New Age way to think. It's yin and yang, that there's this equal separation of light and darkness, good and evil. There's a little good in all evil and a little evil in all good. And, and as I've considered that and how unscriptural of an idea that was, I remember it in my childhood and teenage years, which were spent in the 70s and 80s. And, and this was the height, for those of you who are my age or older, this was the height and the very end of the Cold War. And man, political tensions were high. And during those years, we in the, in the West assumed that the world had two great superpowers, the United States and the, and the Soviet Union. And both of them were poised. There was a 50-50 split, and both of them were poised with equal nuclear capabilities that could bring about a worldwide holocaust. But what we discovered, when all that ended, at the very end of the Cold War, what we, dis- what we discovered was that the U.S. for years had been outspending and therefore had outgunned the USSR by a long shot. And we were more prepared and we were better armed than their communist economy could have ever kept them. They could not keep up. And it eventually imploded in the early 90s and all of Eastern Europe was finally liberated from their tyranny. We often view the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness in the same way, that there's this tension between these two superpowers that could go either way. It's a 50-50 split. But guess what? No matter how it may sometimes appear, this war is already won. It's absolutely, clearly undeniably won. Our enemy is way outgunned, way outgunned. And though he vehemently denies this fact, there is no way he can ever catch up. Psalm 129 verse 5 says this, may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backwards. Someday the weakness of all earthly and unearthly enemies of God and his people will be humiliatingly exposed for all to see. One day we're going to, the Bible talks about this day and and it says that someday the people are going to look on their enemy and they're going to laugh and they'll say, whoa, is this the one? Is this the one that, that fooled and deceived the nations? This guy? Really? 
And they're going to be amazed when they see the weakness and, and the, the, the folly exposed. The, the Bible says that, that may those who hate Zion be turned backwards. And this, this word turned backwards in the, in the Hebrew, it literally means confounded, which means confused or perplexed or even damned, that, that these people would be just turned back. And that, that would include all the demonic power, all the power of the enemy that's against us. God intends to put an end to the demonic plower. He wants to put an end to the demonic plower, as well as every worldly ox that has pulled his plow across the backs of his people. And that the great end of the story goes like this in Revelation chapter 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then verse 15, and anyone... And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So all of the enemies of God, every spiritual being, every earthly being that has set their face against God will someday be completely destroyed. They will be turned backwards. We have a promise of the future destruction of the enemies of God and his people. But that may not really make you that excited. You may say, well, what about in the here and now? Well, our, our psalm today answers that. Verse 6, let them be like grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hands, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Real quickly, this is what the psalmist is laying out for us. He sees the wicked as entirely, uh, you know, and ultimately futile and unproductive. In, in ancient Israel, people would, would have these, these houses and they would pack, you know, clay and mud on the house and roll it out really flat where it would get really dry and protect the house from rain and stuff like that. But what would happen is there'd be micro fissures in those in those uh, in that mud and that that sod and that that uh, uh, you know uh, clay and seeds would blow in there and pretty soon you'd have some grass or some weeds growing up on the top of the roof and and the, what the psalmist is is wanting you to see is that the wicked and, and those who are God's enemies and the enemies of the people of God are ultimately futile and unproductive just like this grass that grew incidentally on the tops of ancient earthen roofs. It wasn't, you didn't like go up there to the top of the roof and mow that grass so that you could feed it to your animals. It basically, you didn't bind it in sheaves and store it into barns. It was shallow rooted and withered in the hot sun. It was utterly and entirely useless and short lived. And the wicked, God wants you to see the comparison here. The wicked make a big show, but they come and they go largely unnoticed. Now, we notice them while they're here. Don't misunderstand that. But, you know, history has them come up and they go and are forgotten soon. How many despots, how many tyrants in the history of mankind have we seen come and go? They boasted of eternal kingdoms. Our kingdom will last forever. Adolf Hitler, that'll be a thousand-year Reich. But they were soon reduced to dust by the decree of God Almighty. People, historians don't look at Nebuchadnezzar or Nero and, and think, wow, those guys, 
Those guys are people to emulate. They don't speak of God's blessing upon them. Even in their lifetimes, their subjects cursed their cruelty and delighted in their passing. And in the biblical language, they became a byword, a taunt, a horror, and a proverb among the nations who now only speak in large volumes of their rise and their fall. But the people of God remain. In all nations of the world, the people of God remain. With the survivors of despots and their decrees, with the survivors of tyrants and their torture chambers, with the survivors of emperors and their empires, all of those things go and we remain. All of those things are gone. We remain and shall not be moved because God is our defender. And he's cut the cords of every plow that has come against us, and he will do it again and again and again and again. As long as the people of God exist on earth, awaiting the resurrection of their bodies until we stand in glory with Christ Jesus, I imagine that we will suffer persecution. I think that's the teaching of the New Testament. But we take comfort in the fact that we are only suffering what our Lord already suffered before us. He was greatly afflicted from his earliest days as well. Remember the story of Jesus? Herod tried to kill him when he was only two years old. The devil grievously tempted him in the wilderness. The people in the synagogue at Nazareth tried to throw him over a cliff as he announced his arrival as the long-awaited Messiah. And then he was mocked and eventually beaten, flogged, crowned with thorns, and crucified. And verse 3 becomes a prediction of the messianic suffering. The plowers plowed upon my back and they made long their furrows. What does that remind us of? Well, it corresponds to another prophecy in Isaiah 53, verse 5. Upon him was the chastisement, the flogging or the whipping that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. What happened? The plowers plowed his back. They made long their furrows. And what did God do through that prepared soil? He planted salvation. He planted forgiveness. He planted grace for the whole world. And it brought a harvest that we're still reaping to this day. Within those wounds, the long furrows upon his holy back, God planted seeds of healing, of forgiveness, of reconciliation for all who would believe for everyone who would call upon his name for grace in faith. And they've grown up in an abundant harvest of eternal salvation, forgiveness, and peace. What of Christ's enemies who did this to him? The devil who inspired all their cruelty and the pain that sinful men wrought upon Jesus' body. Well, some of them, like Saul of Tarsus, have been brought to nothing by the grace of Jesus Christ. And others like Herod and Caesar have gone to the pit to receive God's just wrath. But there's more to this. There's more to this and it matters to you. And it's this, Hebrews 10, verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, when his back was plowed and the furrows were made long, he sat down at the right hand of God, awaiting at that time when all his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Nobody is going to escape Jesus. 
They will either fall to his grace or they will fall to his wrath, but everyone's going to fall before Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26 tells us the day is coming when the last enemy death will be forever destroyed underneath his feet. Philippians 2 tells us that there's a day coming that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship. And what confidence all of this instills in us. God is the Lord over all. And he's the Lord over all of our suffering. No tribulation can come to us without his making use of it for our spiritual benefit. But even more, we can suffer hopefully, knowing that our Savior has already suffered for us and is now glorified as we someday will be. We looked at this verse Wednesday night, and I just thought it was a perfect way to end this and share this with you. Hebrews 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Your back is plowed, his back was plowed first. But one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If we must suffer, may it be in such a way that we're prepared to bring forth a rich harvest of glory for the sake of our King who has suffered for us, who is Lord over all our suffering, and who will bring us through it all. Amen. Amen. If you would stand with me, and we're going to come to the Lord's table in recognition of the suffering of the Lord. You can go ahead and come on down and receive it. Some churches um, uh, will do communion once a month, once a quarter. And um, we, we made a, a decision based on a conviction several years ago that we were going to do this often, that we were going to do it every week when we gathered together. And, and, um, and one of the reasons that we made that decision is because uh, of the just absolute power of this beautiful ordinance, the sacrament that the Lord gave to us. And it is this, that every week, myself or someone else stands up here and, and we preach the gospel. We talk about the plow upon Jesus's back and and, and we talk about his sufferings in other ways, and we talked about the redemptive element of those sufferings. But the beauty of these two simple elements that you're holding in your hands right now is that they not only let you hear the gospel, but they let you see the gospel. They let you feast upon the gospel. They let you experience the gospel in a very tangible way. That's why we call this a means of grace. And so... As you're doing this today, I want you to think about, this may sound kind of strange, but I want you to think about where you are right now in in regards to suffering. Don't do that thing that we always do. Well, it's not as bad as this guy, or maybe it's worse than that guy. Don't do that. Just think about where you're at and the suffering that you're going through. Maybe it's something in your body. Maybe it's something in a relationship. Maybe it could be any, any kind of thing. But think about where you're suffering right now, where you're where your heart is broken and where, where life is hard and the burden is hard. And then I want you to just realize 
that's symbolized in the elements that you are, are holding is the fact that, that whatever affliction you're going through, you are not going through alone because you have a great high priest that at every point has been tempted or tested just like you are, yet without sin. And, and this, these elements represent that, that broken and bleeding body, that blood that was poured out. And, and, and the, the, what, this, what this is, this is a pledge to you that whatever you suffer in his name, that one, he suffered, uh, uh, the, the one he suffered before you, and two, that um, you will overcome because he overcame. You may overcome in this life, and I hope you do, I pray you do, or you may, come over, uh, over, you may overcome when you step out of this life, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But your promise is this will not last because Jesus has already defeated it. Jesus has already cut the cords on the oxen that are plowing your back. And what great praise and worship that gives us. What a great reason to praise and worship that gives us. So Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. And so, Lord, in faith, we proclaim your death. Lord, we proclaim your death knowing that the one who died has been raised to the highest place and has been given a name which is above every other name. And Lord, we thank you that in that highest place you reside as the Lord of all of our suffering, the Lord of our great affliction, the one who owns the plow that plows our back, the one who will someday declare with finality enough. And Lord, we will be broken before you and you will plant your seeds in our brokenness, and we will bring forth a harvest of everlasting praise. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to read this benediction over you. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, amen. You're dismissed.